America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on civics education. Our guest is Paul Carice, the founding director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Dr. Carice was a professor of political science at the U.S. Air Force Academy for nearly two decades. He has held fellowships at Oxford University, Harvard University, the University of Delhi, and Princeton University. Dr. Carice has authored and edited multiple books, his most recent book is entitled Democracy in Moderation, Montesquieu, Tocqueville, and Sustainable Liberalism. From 2019 to 2021, Dr. Carice co-led a national study funded by the NEH and U.S. Department of Education, Educating for an American Democracy, on improving American history and civics education in K-12 schools. According to Educating for American Democracy, America is in a Sputnik moment that requires invigorated efforts in K-12 and higher education, while improvements in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education are important. Deficiencies in humanities have left generations of Americans without a solid understanding of U.S. history and civics. Reform is difficult because there is discord among academics, educators, politicians, and citizens about U.S. history's meaning and how it should be taught. The failure to prioritize and invest in rigorous American history and civics education has devastated America's civic strength and civic health. One byproduct of this neglect is America's polarization and political dysfunction. Enhanced history and civics education helps citizens appreciate the great gifts of our free society, as well as how we can work together to improve it and build a better future for generations to come. Civics education can help us appreciate our differences and understand our common identity as citizens of a republic in which we all have a say in how we are governed. Civics-educated citizens are best prepared to elect qualified leaders of character and hold them accountable for governing well and strengthening our democratic institutions and processes. We welcome Dr. Curries to discuss the need for civics and history education and proposals to renew civics education, to rekindle in American youth an understanding of American history and an appreciation for the virtues and great promise of America, as well as our nation's shortcomings and imperfections. Paul Carice, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's a real pleasure to see you. And hey, thanks for your tremendous leadership in, in leading a school that I think is really important to, you know, to, to restoring our strategic confidence as Americans. You know, this, Paul, this series is about strategic competence mainly and an effort to try to, to view complex challenges abroad from the perspective of others. But in this session, we're going to talk about your role and hear your thoughts 
about how to restore our confidence, our confidence in who we are as a people and our, our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And we're doing so at a time when we see a democracy under assault by an authoritarian regime. So it couldn't be, I mean, it's difficult timing, a sad time, but it could be better timing to have this conversation. Thanks for making the time to be with us. Thank you so much, HR, for having me. Thanks to the Battlegrounds podcast and your team, the Hoover Institution. It's an honor to be talking with you and be talking with your audience. I look forward to it. Well, you know, it's, it sounds trite sometimes, Paul, but really the, the answer you know, to so many of the challenges we face are, is education, right? And, and what, I, what I'd like to do is ask you, you know, what is, what is the gap you're trying to fill, the needs you're trying to fill in the area specifically of, of civics education and helping citizens understand better you know, the nature of our democracy and their role in it? Well, it, it's great to have the credibility of someone like yourself, very experienced in public life and in national security and in combat, uh, to say that education matters. Um, I'll, I'll outrank you, HR, and say the first general I know of to do this in American history was George Washington, right? At the founding of the country in several important addresses uh, and finally in his farewell address explicitly stating how important it was for a free people to be educated if a free constitutional republic was to be maintained. And as you, uh, you know, as a graduate of, of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, he wanted, he and his Treasury Secretary Hamilton wanted a National Military Academy. They, they couldn't get it in his administration. Eventually it comes. Uh, he, he and Hamilton also wanted a national university. So the writings are, go back to the beginning of the American free constitutional republic that we will not be able to maintain. Uh, we can have the best laws on the book, so to speak, the best constitutional force, but we will not be able to maintain liberty, including, as Washington knew, in a dangerous world, unless we have citizens who are informed, engaged, and we have time to talk about this. That also includes the civic virtues of respecting that free people will disagree, respecting that there are different parties or philosophical viewpoints. So th there's, as you know, you wrote about it in your book, Battlegrounds, there is an enormous deficit now. There are, there are, many, there are many sources <laughs> of the problem, but more or less across at least the last 50 years, various educational institutions, higher ed, my, my tribe, you know, a professor my whole career, um, and, and to some extent in K-12 as well, just taking our eye off the ball of how important civic education is for free, informed, engaged people. So I appreciate your attention to this issue in the book. And then now uh, on, on the podcast, there's just enormous work to be done everywhere you look. Uh, K-12, <laughs> higher ed, yeah. adults beyond that, there's just enormous work to be done. So, Paul, I'll just ask you maybe some more detail for our viewers. So why? Why does it matter? Why is civics education important? And, and what effect does a lack of an understanding about our democracy, our principles, and how our government functions and, and, and what citizens' role is in the functioning of that government, how, why does that matter? Why should that matter to Americans? One cause, I think, of our polarization, as the term is used, uh, that has deepened in the past decade and more, in which American citizens are angry with each other. They identify another party as the source of America's problems. And those people are un-American 
or they're stupid or they have bad motives. That has deepened and deepened. And one cause of that, I think, is a, is a lack of civic knowledge and then the lack of these civic virtues. So an impatience about American complex political forms, <laughs> impatience with debate and disagreement stems from a lack of knowledge that our forms of politics, local, state, national, were designed to be complicated so that we would have to argue with each other. So uh, on the general premise, at the end of the day, you would get less stupid policy. <laughs> you, you would avoid bigger problems. It wouldn't be perfect, but you would make fewer big errors. So if you don't understand that our entire political system, national down to local, is designed for that kind of argument disagreement, then you're, you're likely to be impatient and to have uh, an easier path towards thinking, oh, those people are just stupid or they have bad motives or, or they're un-American or those people on the other side. So, and that polarization means we cannot, as you wrote in, in your book and you've talked about, you know, we can't make stable, steady national policies. And this goes down to the state and local level as well. You wrote about Afghanistan. We didn't really have a failed war after 20 years. We had a sequence of one-year wars for 20 years. We couldn't stick to strategies because it was difficult in this polarized uh, culture. An another dimension most recently after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in recent weeks, Quinnipiac national polling uh, firm did a, a survey of American attitudes about this. And one question they posed, you know, a ca carefully done demographically uh, adequate uh, sample one question they posed is, if America were invaded, just like Ukraine has been invaded by a, a foreign enemy power, would you stay and fight? As at least many Ukrainians have done and the, and the government leadership has had. And the good news is that a majority of people who responded to the poll said they would stay and fight. The worrying part is that in the 18 to 34 group, men and women, uh, a, a slim majority plurality said, no, they would not. It was close, but that's, it's, it's very worrying to think that an, a rising generation does not value American self-government, American constitutional democracy, all of the freedom and prosperity and, and the dignity and nobility that come with being self-governed. And then the third is, as you know very well, and again, you've written about in your book, and George Washington made this point in the farewell address, our enemies will exploit our polarization, our, our our tendency to think badly of another party and get wrapped up in our own partisan uh, fights. They will, they will exploit our sense of confidence, uh, our lack of confidence in America. They will exploit that to erode our security and to threaten us. Vladimir Putin is the prime example of having doing, you know, doing precisely that for you know, 20 years. You know, you know, Paul, I, you know, I think Putin, uh, really what he tries to do and what the Russians have tried to do with the sustained campaign of cyber enabled you know, information warfare against us, I think is to, to widen the divisions that already exist in our society, but really mainly to reduce our confidence in our, our democratic principles and institutions and processes. I think, for example, you know, Vladimir Putin doesn't care who wins our elections as long as a large number of Americans doubt the legitimacy of the result. And, you know, what, what can we do to to combat, you know, the conspiracy theories, right? The unfounded, you know, sort of stop the steal and the idea that the 2020 election was stolen or 
Go back to the 2016 election. If you want to lay some blame on the other side of the political spectrum, those who said, well, Russia, you know, determined the outcome of the election. Both of those falsehoods reduce our confidence. How can we combat that and restore, you know, real, restore our confidence in probably the maybe the most important act in a democracy, which is an election and the peaceful transfer of power? Well, there are long games involved, and you know, as someone with both an, an excellent educational background and, and public uh, uh, service, that there also needs to be some, you know, short short game, shorter term measures uh, taken. I think the the long game involves national consensus efforts and then local attempts at consensus efforts to say we can provide an American civics and history education that is excellent academically rigorous, uh, that, that does not fall to the extreme either of saying America's perfect, uh, and there, there are no uh, sad, sorry, embarrassing episodes, failures in our history, nor the other extreme that America has always been a fraud and a failure uh, in terms of its, its supposed political ideals from 1776 onward. As you know, I was asked to be part of a national study called Educating for American Democracy, Full disclosure, I was the intellectual conservative invited to be part of the lead team, colleagues at Harvard and Tufts and, and iCivics, but we did just that. So it's it can be done. Right. You can find national consensus, left, right, center views to say, this is a national priority. This ought to be a state and local priority. Uh, and then and there, there are short-term uh, dimensions to that. Just what you're doing for, for people who do have positions of, of influence in, in media, in academia, in, in public life to come together and say, we need to spend more time and effort on civic education. And again, these civic virtues, and then in the short term, start practicing these civic virtues. I could say, oh, you know, McMaster, he served in the Trump administration. You know, he's just despicable. I don't have to think, I don't have to listen to another word that guy says. Or, you know, he's in the military or what, you know, what, but no, you, you're not, you're, you're deficit spending and undermining the very freedom you enjoy as an American citizen to, to speak freely and to think freely. If you, if you take that approach to your fellow citizens, to, to people who you should instead be listening to and then arguing with and, and responding. So again, this, you know, both short-term and long-term measures that need to be taken. You know, Paul, it was kind of an unenviable task, right, for you to be part of this task force at a time when we were and still are very polarized in terms of the vitriolic partisan politics we see every day. And, you know, of course, against the backdrop of, you know, the 1619 project and the endeavors to teach our young people that our country was founded uh, to, to preserve slavery rather than founded on principles that, that ultimately made that horrible uh, criminal institution unsustainable. You know, how did you do it? You know, what did you focus on in terms of common ground? What is it that we should all be able to agree on as Americans? Well, first of all, I'm grateful to my colleagues at, at Harvard and at Tufts and in iCivics. I've been a professor in, in political science and taught at the U.S. Air Force Academy for, you know, I've been in this game for 30 years. And most of higher education in our disciplines, you know, the humanities, social sciences, has shifted in a, in a leftward direction intellectually and politically. So I give credit to my colleagues for saying, if we want to write a national study that has credibility and meets the need 
of trying to improve civics education in K-12 public schools, improve the quality, the time devoted to it, the funding and support for it. We have to have conservatives, intellectual conservatives around this table. So to their credit, they reached out to me. Uh, and then we, we shared, some of us knew each other already, but we shared that fundamental commitment that the, the Federal Department of Education and the National Endowment for the Humanities had made a good choice put some money behind the national study and then to have people compete, you know, write a proposal that this was important as an academic endeavor, both higher education and K-12 should do better at this, but is also crucial as a civic matter. We just, we looked around and we thought education is either irrelevant, you know, from K-12 to college and university, it's either irrelevant to the health and strength of our constitutional democracy or we have some responsibility here to what's going wrong. Um, I think it's the absence of civics education that explains, I think, so much. You know, I often think about you know, how, how patriotic and enthusiastic about, about our democratic principles and the rights that they enjoy that, that you see within our immigrant community, right? I mean, and, you know, I think that there's a correlation between, well, first of all, they're a self-selecting group, right, who are often yes. coming here because, they, because they, they cherish, you know, the freedoms that we often take for granted. But also there's a civics education course as, as part of, you know, becoming a naturalized citizen. Yes. And could you tell our, our viewers a little bit about what should be in civics education for parents, especially, you know, what, what should they expect their children to be learning? And what did you put into this, this great curriculum you developed and what are the highlights? Well, first of all, we would want uh, parents and school leaders and, and, and teachers, district level and state level to, to be interested in this study, Educating for American Democracy. We decided not to produce a national curriculum on civics and history to fit with our federal constitutional principles of government. I, I should have said toolkit, right? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we decided that we should provide guidelines that it, it was appropriate for the federal government to be interested in American civics and history education out in K-12 schools, just like George Washington was interested in an educated citizenry. That was appropriate. But under our form of government, the primary responsibility for writing the detailed curriculum would happen at the state and local level. So we called our, our final document a roadmap, a set of guidelines. And there's, of course, excellent content in it, and it's scintillating writing, and everybody out there should you know, find a, a copy of the report at the, the Educating for American Democracy website. What we, we chose as a basic approach was seven main themes, K through 12 in grade bands. You know, so you, you're not going to do this in the same way, K2, K2 as you would for, for 912, but seven main themes, none of them terribly surprising, but to, to divide it up this way to say they're separate areas, like what are our forms of government since the founding, um, but also what is America's role in the world, a, a, a people in the world. Another theme, what does it mean to be participating as a self-governing citizen in a constitutional democracy? So all these you know, seven themes, and then how do they fit together? And then further, an interesting uh, development, I, I particularly credit this to Daniel Allen at Harvard, to say that there are tension points here. There are design challenges, we call them, that in K-12 education, the teachers and the students, especially the older students, should grapple with the tensions and the ambiguities 
these, these these seven themes don't fit together so easily. Principles and forms of our government don't fit together so easily. So instead of saying, well, gee, this is a problem, this is a bug, you say, no, this is a feature of being a free people governed in these complicated ways. And let's talk about the disagreements and the challenges. And then that led to this third element, the civic virtues. If, you're, if you have forms of government that really force any thoughtful person to think, gee, how do, how do you really fit together law, forms of government with freedom? And how do you fit together equality with freedom? which is gonna to lead to differences and inequality. All these different tensions, that's gonna take civic virtues. And we emphasize, for example, the civic virtue of reflective patriotism. It's a phrase we took from Alexis de Tocqueville, that Americans, like other free peoples, we should be grateful for and love America. Grateful for this form of government, but reflective, it's not like it's, it's as Tocqueville said, the old world. You know, I come from this patch of soil and this blood, and this ethnic group alone. No, it's reflective. We're free. So we want to argue and disagree with America, with our, our forms of government. So reflective patriotism, civil disagreement, that we can have different philosophical views, party views, political views, and yet we re respectfully listen to and disagree with each other. You know, Paul, I, I, I think of the quotation from uh, Richard Rorty, you know, which he said in the, in the beginning of that that great book on 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 pride, on national pride. It says national pride uh, is like is like self to nations. Pride is to nations uh, like self respect is to individuals, right? A necessary ingredient for self improvement. And what I worry about is the, how kind of what I would call the you know the orthodoxy of the new left or post colonial post modernist critical theories or what we might even call the curriculum of self-loathing that is predominant in, in much uh, of, of the American Academy and is now present uh, in secondary education as well, as well. I'm thinking of, you know, Harold Zinn's book, you know, <laughs> the history of the American peoples and so forth, that yes. interpretation, right. That, that we are the problem in the world, uh, which is actually a profoundly arrogant way, right. To look at history. Uh, yes. It's just a wrong way to look at history. Uh, really does need a corrective and not with a contrived happy view of our history, but a critical view of our history. Uh, to what degree do you think civics education is American history? And, and what do you think uh, that parents and, and school boards ought to be involved with at the local levels to, to ensure that the curriculum in, in American history is neither one of those extremes, right? Is not a curriculum of, of self-loathing, uh, you know, or, uh, or a curriculum of sort of a contrived happy view? Yes, well, you're doing me a favor. So my background is political science and sort of the civics constitutional side of it, but you're the historian. And that was another design of this study. Uh, we had an excellent historian from Harvard, Jane Kamensky, who was part of the founding team. And she got us to immediately think that an improvement we could suggest again, to be adapted out in states and localities in, the, in their own ways. But we could, we could improve civics education by insisting that history and civics were distinct, yet had to be braided from K through 12. So we did separate out categories of here are the history questions we wanna emphasize and themes we wanna emphasize, and here are the civics one. But we, we, we always talked about the need in reality on the ground in a classroom a teacher with a lesson plan or, or a project would be trying to braid these two to see how they 
interplay with each other. And actually that reminds me, I forgot one other element of this Educating for American uh, Democracy study. We emphasize questions, questions, topics more than we did the answers. We thought as an outline roadmap, set of guidelines, we did want some specific content. So, you know, George Washington is there and Lincoln is there and the constitution is there and the declaration is there. And, uh, you know, the, the, civil, the, the civil war amendments uh, are there and, you know, great moments in American challenges in American foreign policy. There's content, historical specific content and specific civics content there. But we decided what was needed was an approach to suggest here are important topics and issues and here are questions you ought to ask about it and to push the teachers and the students to come up with answers based on curric curricular content that they have and sources, primary and secondary, and then to and then have space to, to see, oh, there are different answers. Right. Because this is what free people will do, right? What should, we, what should we do about Ukraine right now and Russia invading Ukraine? Well, there are reasonable people could disagree about yeah. just what we should do. And that's true of every policy question, basically. <laughs> You know, yeah. some exceptions uh, where there really shouldn't be reasonable disagreement, but uh, and and at every level of government and, and public policy. So that that mode of question, answer, disagreement, discuss as itself a civic education, we, we worked that in. You know, and I think one of the great services you've done is I think if this curriculum, you know, is is adapted or it's not a curriculum but if but if you know if this program you know really is adopted at the local level uh and and becomes curricula that that do that do that strikes this this balance right between you know criticism but but then also recognition right of the of the freedoms and and the privileges that we enjoy um in terms of the you know our, our fundamental rights uh and and the rights that we have as citizens i hope it 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 rekindles a sense of agency right that we can actually build a better future. One of the problems, I think in particular, Paul, with critical theory broadly and, and certain elements of it, you know, like critical race theory, elements of critical race theory that, that essentially say that every problem is structural, every problem is institutional, and, and those adjectives appear right before every challenge we face. Hey, what does that leave citizens with except kind of a toxic combination, right, of, of, of resignation and anger? And so I think what's really important about the work you've done is it it teaches people, hey, you can do something. If you don't like what's happening at the local level, if you don't like what's happening at the national level, you can exercise your civic duties and, and affect the change. I mean, do you think this is a big part of it is a restoration of kind of a sense of agency among our citizenry? citizenry? Yes. And we tried to, again, this guidelines, framework, there's only so much we could write, but we tried to say, here are the foundations for that, right? So the phrase from the declaration that just, for, just forms of government must derive from the laws of nature and nature's God, right? There are principles of justice there, but then there's the freedom to say in the final, I got in there, the, the closing lines of the Declaration of Independence, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor to do something about this injustice you know, that the British King and Parliament have imposed right. upon it. And then we have references to these extraordinary figures in American history, you should give confidence to people today. It's not like Abraham Lincoln was somebody. He's a nobody, you know, he's a nobody. The, the Hamilton musical shows in a way, Hamilton was a nobody, right? Uh, who was Elizabeth Cady Stanton? 
who, who Ulysses S. Ulysses S. Grant to throw in a, in a, in a, a uh, you know in a military example of someone who helped uh, in the emancipation of four million of our fellow Americans. Right? He was a he was a failed shopkeeper before before the Civil War. Right? Uh, who was Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave? So you know Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony. These are you know some of our greatest statesmen and stateswomen never held public office. And people they never elected who did a public something. Office. People who did something. They did something. Ro- Rosa Parks. I mean, another example of someone really exercising her civic duties and yeah. and affecting change. Yeah. Who's Martin? Who's Martin Luther King? Right. I mean, it's just you know. Yes, his family committed to his education. Minister, PhD, yes, but what what did he see as a need, and then what did he do about it? So yes, if you if you look through that educating for American democracy roadmap, there are plenty of points in which we try to say the American story is an incredible story. The American experiment in self government is an incredible experiment. It's not perfect, but that shouldn't lead to some sort of despair. Um, and again, at the other extreme, it shouldn't lead to some sort of worship of only selected moments in the past as if to say they're perfect and really nothing better can be done than that. So we, we did try to strike that, that balance. Absolutely. So yeah, I think it is important to, to view our history critically, right. To understand that, you know, our Republic was always in the eyes of the founders, a, 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 a Republic that would require in their words, constant nurturing. Right. And, and of course uh, it wasn't until almost a hundred years after the founding that, that we, reconciled the greatest contradiction in our constitution, which was the institution of slavery and the elimination of slavery. But of course, the struggle for equality of opportunity didn't end there with the, you know, with the failure of reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and the separate but equal period. But of course, citizens exercised their civic duties during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And we did ultimately dismantle de jure segregation and inequality of opportunity. Well, hey, today, right, let's recognize de facto inequality of opportunity still exists, right? The zip code into which one is born still determines you know, the numbers of, of, of obstacles you have to overcome to access the great promise of America. So, but, so Paul, what, what I would say is where do you see us headed now? Are we, you know, it, it, what was you know, the, the last several years of, of traumas, of, of unexpected length and difficulty of wars, of a financial crisis, 2008, 2009, of, of you know, throw an opioid epidemic on top of that. Transitions in the global economy that saw a lot of Americans lose their lose their jobs. The vitriolic partisanship that we've that we've had to in- endure. You know, the, I mean, the, the January sixth assault on the Capitol uh, in, in twenty twenty. You, know, what is your prognosis now in terms of the health of our democratic institutions and and processes and the faith? What faith should we have in our in our democratic principles? Well, you know that uh, you write about it in your book that war can be sobering, uh, uh, some national security threat can be sobering and can get uh, leaders with foresight and educational leaders with foresight thinking about educational responses to this. So you mentioned you know, Sputnik and the, the National Defense Act. In the Educating for American Democracy study, we suggest that uh, two challenges during the Cold War period, the Sputnik challenge, and then in the 1980s, the competitiveness challenge, right? We had rebuilt the West German economy, rebuilt Japan's economy, South Korea, and now they were were out competing us in certain ways. Those were two moments in which a national consensus across party lines 
across sectors, private sector, public sector formed to say, well, we have to reinvest in education to deal with an external threat. The challenge now is that we are in something like a Sputnik moment, but we just don't see that we are because the challenge is internal. Our, our loss of focus on civic education to prepare people to be formed engaged citizens, our, our polarized uh, detestation of each other, that these are national security challenges. These threaten and undermine our form of government and our freedom and our prosperity and security. We don't see that we are the source of the threat, that our modes of, of thinking, a kind of decay uh, is the threat. So you're making your effort. We tried in that education, uh, educating for American democracy uh, study to do that. I will say some good news stories that that, that report was released in 2021. The New York City public schools have adopted Educating for American Democracy as their template roadmap for revising, renewing their civics and history curriculum. We are working with a charter school network in Arizona, the Great Hearts Academies, which is over 30 schools across Arizona, Texas, and they're now in Louisiana. They are working with us to produce a detailed K-12 civics and history curriculum based on that model. And then we want to share it. With, with any 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 district in the country, any school in the country that's interested in it. So there has been some interest in this study. Um, it's it's slow, it's messy like American politics because it's gotta be state and local. It's gotta work from the ground up. But I, I would say in relation to this current security crisis, perhaps some farsighted leaders can uh, in, in the education sector, in, in media and public policy and government can look at how fortunate we are to have built the transatlantic alliance, to have built NATO. So unfortunately, the Ukrainians are not in it and, and are paying a, a price for that. But the, to, to be grateful for leaders in the past who made these decisions and made these two commitments and then people like you, HR, who fought and put their, put their lives on the line to do this, how fortunate we are, but how fragile it is and, and part of the investment and commitment we need to make if we really are grateful and not just free riders is investment in this kind of national consensus civic education. So we do have the civic strength uh, uh, and the resilience. And you know, one other point, you've, you've served all over the world, right? I've been fortunate in my education to have studied and, and lived and taught in, in Europe, in India, in Southern Africa. You and I know what many Americans might take for granted, how incredibly free and prosperous and fortunate we are in so many ways compared to so many other people in the world. I, you know, it's awful, horrible what, what Russia is doing to the Ukrainians right now. And there are some, there are some you know, inspiring noble moments and responses, including you know, the response from the Ukrainian government and humanitarian responses. But there's a larger lesson we might learn to say how incredibly fortunate we are to have this form of government and to have this prosperity and to have this peace and security, but it doesn't happen automatically. It's not self-sustaining automatically like some machine. People have to know it and, and be committed to it. And it's a, the operator's manual is very complicated you know, it's a, to, to, to perpetuate it. So I'm, maybe this crisis uh, can have us thinking about some of these fundamental questions about our own civic education, about the alliances we've built and should be 
committed to. Uh, so I'm hopeful and I'm grateful to you for, for taking time to talk about this. Well, I think it's impossible not to be inspired by the Ukrainian people and how they're fighting to preserve the freedoms that we enjoy and, and should not take for granted. I think that's a, a really, really important point. And, and as we empathize with, with the, the Ukrainian people and, and do everything we can to support them in a small way, um, I hope that we'll also relearn to empathize with one another because I'm really worried, Paul, that we've kind of lost the ability to do that, right? We, we've seen the toxicity of, of the information environment and in particular how social media uh, based on on a business model that aims to get more and more advertising dollars through more and more clicks and to get more and more clicks through more and more extreme content is driving us apart from one another. And it seems like we're better connected to one another electronically uh, than ever, uh, but we're more distant from one another psychologically and and emotionally and, and, and socially. So, you know, Paul, what is your experience? What do you see in terms of the trends? Do you think this can be a way for Americans to come together? How are things at Arizona State, you know, which is a great American university dedicated to, to improving the access for, for, to, uh, for, of high uh, quality education for Americans? Um, what's your prognosis? Are we going to get better at empathizing with one another? Can the example of the Ukrainians maybe help us snap out of it uh, and, and reverse uh, some of the polarization that we've seen? Uh, we're in the education business in part, right? You, you, you are at, at Hoover and the Stanford Institution. So we are always hopeful, <laughs> thinking that educational efforts matter. I do have to say, coming from the great state of Arizona, uh, the late John McCain had a, had a wonderful phrase, uh, uh, to be sober. Uh, you know, things are always darkest just before they go totally black. <laughs> so we, we ought to be sober about the, we, you know, that things could get, continue to get worse with our polarization and our incredible civic ignorance and how that saps national confidence and yet young people having no interest. You know, there are other poll results we looked at in educating for American democracy. Americans not really caring about living in a democracy. Young Americans, who cares? Why, you know, why does it matter? So I, we should be sober uh, to think, um, just because we think it's hit rock bottom doesn't mean it has, it, it could get worse. but to you know, see that it can be done, that, that people from across intellectual points of view, academics like in this study can come together. You, you have tried to serve in a nonpartisan way in a very difficult national security position and now with Hoover, try to convene conversations across points of view about America's security challenges and trying to restore strategic competence and strategic empathy, it can be done. You, you're, as an historian, you know, in the past, we had extraordinary moments of bipartisanship. You know, the, the fact that, that, that Senator Vandenberg from the Republican Party supports Harry Truman. And who the heck Harry Truman is? Nobody, right? I mean, he, but he's, now he's the president of the United States after FDR dies. And, you know, the, the group of people who say we are in a long-term struggle, that that extraordinary war, that great war, the second world war, that was not the end. That was the end of one chapter and we are in another chapter now. And we have got to pull together and make some major sacrifices and major strategic orientations, reorientations, including educationally. Well, that doesn't happen without Vandenberg yeah, in, right. in the Senate and yeah. certain number of Republicans to say, okay, well, our party, the Republicans had a certain view for a certain number of decades. Now, 
we're, we're sober, we're Americans in this together, we will come together. So if you have some study of history, you know right. that, that, you know, that, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm thinking of Everett Dirksen's role yes. working with Lyndon Johnson on civil rights. You know, this is, I mean, we've been able to do it in the past. Yeah. And, and, and we began conversations with what we could agree on instead yeah. of what we disagreed yeah. on. Yes. You know, and, and, uh, and, and since think, you, you, you talked about disinformation, just a, a point about that, that's a challenge we've faced before, new forms of media and, and the challenge of how to make the best out of a new kind of mode of, of, of information and how to avoid the kind of, uh, you know, tribalism and sorting that you mentioned earlier. So we, in our school, we have a public affairs series, we call it the Civic Discourse Project. We invite distinguished public intellectuals and, and academics. You've spoken in that series. We had, uh, around the time you came last fall, we had Jonathan Rauch, longtime fellow at the Brookings Institution, you know, jur career journalist turned thinker about journalism and media and politics. His most recent book is called The Constitution of Knowledge to try to make a direct connection between our complicated form of government. I just, I just ordered it. I've got it around yes. here somewhere. Yeah, a connection between Well, this our, is this is a corrective yeah. to this critical theory nonsense, right? That yes. there is no such thing as truth, right? That, that you know, right. And, and Jonathan's saying left and right people, smart people on left and right ought to come together on a consensus about this. Our whole form of government is not risk because of civic ignorance, failure of civic education. And then part of it, is we're not educating ourselves, K-12, university level, but then in crucial professions, journalism and the media, technology professions, to be aware of the civic dangers and the civic costs of not being committed to disagreeing, arguing it out, hearing different points of view, so that we can sort out, it's difficult, sort out what is garbage, <laughs> what, what is less trustworthy from what is what is more reliable and what might get us closer to the truth. So he cites various new institutions, voluntary associations, Tokyo we'll call them, right? New, new organizations forming, new coalitions forming, as, to say, look, we don't just have to despair and throw up our hands and say, oh, this is awful, this whole internet thing and this disinformation thing. There have been moments like this in the, in the past with American media and sources of information. And look right now, in the past decade, the past five years, people have done things. They've recognized there's a problem and they've tried to do what they could to form a new organization or try and set up new protocols or new kinds of, uh, you know, information. I, I think in the, in K-12, we tried to work this into the educating for American democracy study. Uh, okay. I get it that we, we still have a national consensus that math education is very important and pre-technological pre-engineering education is very important. Uh, and, and being prepared to get a job, you know, for K-12. And then obviously that means reading, you know, reading and communication is very important, but we have got to carve out some time or figure out how to weave into those subjects, this kind of civic education. So young people grow up knowing it's a complicated information environment. And, you know, information could be your friend or your enemy. <laughs> and there's gonna be a lot of it out there. So how do you sort through it? We've got to work that into our educational systems now, along with the more traditional civics and, and history education. Well, Paul, you know, a lot of people have been admiring the problem, I would say, you know, of, of polarization. And you did something about it. You and your team did something about it. And you're doing something about it every day at Arizona State University. 
I just want to give you the last word. What, what can our, maybe what can our viewers and what can our listeners do? What would you, what would you ask them to do besides read the work that you've done and, and apply it, uh, which, and we'll make sure the link is up and, and we make it accessible to everybody, but, but what, what can individual Americans, what can parents do? Uh, what can teachers do uh, to, to help address what we, I think we all sense is a, is a problem of this lack of confidence, right? In, 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 in our common identity as Americans and our democratic principles, institutions, and processes, what would you, what would you, what would you charge us with? Well, thank you. You asked me earlier, what's the view from Arizona State University? So I have to give credit to the Arizona government, uh, state government, legislature and the governor six years ago to say there ought to be an investment, a funded mandate from the Arizona state government to say there will be a new department at Arizona State University, civic and economic thought and leadership to bring more attention and focus to these in, in an appropriate higher education, liberal arts way, debate and discussion, but with that word leadership at the end of this new department to get young people thinking about service and leadership, public sector and private sector. So all around the country, educational leaders could be thinking what's private universities and colleges, public universities. Uh, we're, we're an open book. We have a, a lot of information on our website. Other public universities have, have started to adapt our model and, and do their own thing. Texas, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, Utah. So th there's higher education reform work to be done. And people could look at, at and try and learn from our mistakes and from our successes as a, as a school, as a department. There's obviously work to be done in K-12, and that can be, you know, individuals matter in our free form of government, our free politics, individual parents, groups of parents, boards of education, superintendents of schools, uh, teachers can make a difference. Find these resources. Again, what you and I are recommending is the, the points of agreement along with the disagreement. Where, where, what are the national consensus points about better civics and history education and try and work uh, from there. And there are examples of that happening out in the country. And, and then for, for young people, uh, I, I would say there, there've been two books written by university presidents in the past couple of years, which very much validate what the Arizona state government uh, did. One by the former president of Harvard, Derek Bach, a, a book called Higher Expectations, questioning whether or not American higher education is educating young people for the demands, challenges, the battlegrounds of the 21st century. And he has several worries. And the first one he picks is civics education. And I think for, for us, since we're on a Hoover Institution podcast and both of us are conservatives, he, it's important to note he's not a conservative, really. He's not, never been known as a conservative. And then another book, Ron Daniels, president of now of Johns Hopkins University, a book with the extraordinary title, What Universities Owe Democracy. And so in a way he takes that one important theme from Derek Bach's book, and the Daniels book was published in 2021, and he makes it the entire theme of a book, The Failure of Civics Education. And it's really great because he not only talks about civic knowledge quite specifically, historical, institutional, constitutional civic knowledge, but also these civic virtues that university students should be exposed to, whether it's required or encouraged, different points of view about important intellectual, academic, and civic political topics. And they should learn to hear and see reasonable people with facts and, and strong points of view, hear them disagree with each other and go, and go back and forth. So those are two 
sort of external validations. And so any, anybody out there in the country could find those books and say, well, what is my college doing about that? What is my university uh, doing about that? What reforms uh, could we take? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to wrap up with a few a few recommendations as well. Sure. So in, in terms of how we got to this point, I think it's tough to beat Christopher Lash's book, The Revolt of the Elites. Recommend that book. Wonderful. And, and then if you want sort of another left-leaning you know, political philosopher, I think Richard Rorty's Achieving Our Country is a, is a, is a good book. Uh, for, to to really explain from from you know you know not a conservative uh, perspective yes. the the importance of confidence in our in our democracy, uh, and then a book that I've just finished. It's a long essay. You can you can read it in one sitting. It's just called Freedom by Sebastian Younger, and it's it's organized into four succinct chapters. I think four. The third of which is called Fight, and it's yeah. about how the word freedom comes from the need to fight for it which we're yes. seeing, obviously, from the, the Ukrainians uh, today. So, Paul, you know, we, we get to work with a younger generation, a younger generation that is much pilloried these days, you know, because yes. of how, yes. how active they are on social media and, and interested in, in the metaverse, you know, instead of the real world and so forth. But I'll tell you, every time I interact with young people, whether it's at Arizona State, where I'm privileged to be you know, a, a visiting fellow uh, and, and, and here at Stanford, I just come away energized and with greater confidence in the future. And, uh, and so I, I think you, you've been a big part of generating my confidence by reinvigorating uh, civics education and connecting it to a sense of who we are as, as Americans. I can't thank you enough for, for joining us for a discussion about, about this important topic, the work that you've done, and to help us learn about a battleground you know, close to home, uh, which is, I think, the, the, the battle to restore our, our, our strategic confidence uh, and who we are as a people and in our democracy. So on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you so much, Paul, for being with us. Thank you, HR. I'll borrow a phrase I learned from my military colleagues at the Air Force Academy. It's great to be back to back in a trench with you, uh, <laughs> fight, fighting on these important uh, topics and, and restoring our, our civic health and our strategic confidence. Thank you so much for your work. Well, I'd, ra I'd rather be next to you in a tank than back to back. Good point. <laughs> Th thanks, Paul. Thank you so much. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.